Hello everyone, this is Space Cafe Podcast, and I'm Marcus. Let's kick off today's episode with a curious riddle. Are you ready? So, can you guess the one place on Earth where it's forbidden to drive at night with your lights on? Hmm? Got it? The answer lies, of course, in the heart of the Atacama Desert, home to the European Southern Observatory, ESO. Here, the need for pitch-dark skies to observe the cosmos trumps even the most basic of our driving instincts. Now let's embark on a journey that takes us from the familiarity of our daily lives to the extraordinary depths of the universe. We're diving into a project where the remarkable meets the mundane, the European Extremely Large Telescope. ELT, located in the surreal landscape of the Atacama Desert. The telescope, said to be the world's largest optical and near-infrared telescope, isn't just a feat of engineering. It's a human endeavor filled with stories of resilience, teamwork, and the quest for knowledge. Getting to the Atacama Desert from Western Europe or the United States is a journey that underscores the ELT's remoteness. So, for example, for our European listeners, imagine embarking on a flight that can take upward of 15 hours to get you to South America, to this farthest tip, to the Atacama Desert. And then the real journey begins. This venture to one of the driest and most isolated places on Earth highlights the dedication and passion of those involved in this groundbreaking project. Joining us today is ELT project manager Roberto Tamai. Roberto is here not only to share the technical marvels of the ELT, but also to bring us the human side of this awe-inspiring endeavor. From the logistical challenges of working in such a remote location to the daily lives of the scientists and engineers making it happen. Roberto's insights promise to be as grounding as they are enlightening. So grab your favorite drinks or hold tight to your steering wheel or enjoy your run that you're on right now or your workout or whatever you're engaged with. Settle in and let's welcome Roberto Tomai to the Space Cafe podcast where we explore the vastness of space through the lens of those who dare to venture into the unknown. Let's go. I am in the middle of Europe as well. I am in uh, Munich. So I am, and I am flying over there quite often. Wow. Next time it will be in uh, three weeks time. And when I go there, I go for one week. Maximum two weeks, and then back. I've lived in Chile for wow. several so, so which place do you prefer, Munich or the Atacama Desert? Oh, that's a difficult question. 
reason is that uh, in uh, in Chile I had fantastic time, mm. and the people are very similar to the people of where I am from. I am from the south of Italy, mm-hmm. so <laughs> Chileans are very open. They leave for the human relation. They put the mm-hmm. human relation at the very, very high priority in their list of things to do during their life. Mm-hmm. Munich, I would say that everything is perfectly working. Mm-hmm. Maybe the job, the work is a little bit higher in their ranking of priorities with respect to the relation with the others, you know, here mm-hmm. my neighbors, I maybe know who they are. Mm. In Chile, they were coming in and out from the house uh, every single day because the house had the doors open. But my justification mm-hmm. for the different behavior is always the weather. Mm-hmm. The weather is uh, driving a lot of the human character and that is what made the difference. So in Munich, I am having a very nice life. It is very well working. Here is probably one of the few places where I have the four seasons, real, mm. real four seasons, the real <laughs> winter, mm-hmm. the real summer and the spring and fall is fantastic here. The colors mm. of the fall are really great. In Antofagasta, where I lived, uh, it was always summer. So it was a <laughs> bit boring. There was mm. never rain, uh, forget about cold, uh, forget about autumn and the fall and all of that. And, so it's a different, completely different style right. of the life. So how how often do you travel back and forth? Um, this time period, uh, I would say around four or five times per year. In the past, uh, because in the past, there was a period where I was, uh, my duty station was in Chile, but I started working for the ELT. It was a little bit more often. I was uh, flying probably even 10 times per year back and forth. Wow. Now it is uh, around four, five, six times, but pretty soon the period of my trip will be much longer because uh, I hope that pretty soon we will start with the assembling of all the various Mm -hmm. pieces on the telescope, integrating the various optics on the telescope. And at that time, I'm pretty sure I will spend much more time in Chile rather than mm. here in Munich. Now, here in Munich is a very, logistically speaking, also um, a good place to go and visit the various contractors. Most of them mm-hmm. are European, if not all, mm-hmm. because of the industry belonging to the ESO member states. And therefore, I'm often traveling tomorrow. I'm traveling, no, I'm sorry, on Wednesday, I'm traveling to Paris to visit the polisher. And recently I was in Barcelona to visit some of the cells of the optics. I'm often traveling to Italy, where there is the company that is manufacturing all the pieces for the dome and the main structure of the telescope. So strategically speaking, Munich is one of those places that is pretty so pretty close to many premises of our contractors. So, so it's good. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the ELT itself, what it is, um, where it comes from. Um, some say it's the largest um, ground-based telescope that has ever been built and will ever be built, uh, which sounds kind of strange. 
But um, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about the um, extremely large telescope, what it is. Yes. And uh, I agree with you. Today, I will never say that it will be forever the biggest telescope in the world. I would certainly say that for the time being, it is the biggest telescope under construction. It is the biggest telescope fully funded, 100% funded. It has in the operation book also the money to operate, maintain it for at least 30 years. That is the, yes. So all of that is for sure giving a certain position, but I, I don't like that kind of competition. Today I am competing against only the time. The time and it and physics, that is my biggest competitor today. But what is the ELT? The ELT is a ground-based telescope in the visible near-infrared wavelengths. The main mirror has a diameter of 39.2 meters. I'm speaking about the mirror because uh, modern telescope, they don't use any longer lenses. Reason is that uh, the size of the lens is limited by the induced gravity that will break it. Okay. While with the mirror, you can make it as big as you want because you can put the supports on the backside. So with the supports on the backside of the mirror, you can make it as big as you want, and then you will incline, you will still incline all the actuators that are on the backside of the mirror. And the mirror is acting as the collector of the photons. I like to compare a telescope with a funnel of water that is collecting as many photons as possible, then focus them in a precise location. And that is the main goal of the telescope. Then it is the goal of the scientific instrument to use the collected lights and examine it, either by means of a photograph or making spectroscopy or filtering the collected light in order to see special wavelengths. I mean, that is the instrument, the scientific instrument scope that is to analyze the collected light in the multiple, in a variety of ways, depending on what is your uh, scientific goal. Do you want to make a photo? Do you want to see what is the line of oxygen that the special star has? Or what is the line of the composition of the gases of a, a, of a star to verify what it is, this uh, state, and, and so on. So that is the scope of the instrument. Quick question, if I may. Um, people know the James Webb del telescope, of course. So what is the difference between James Webb and the ELT? Of course, James Webb is in, in space, but what else is different? Main difference is that, uh, first of all, James Webb is mostly focused in the infrared wavelength. The telescope, the ELT, goes from UV and covers a variety of wavelengths. First, then um, they will certainly work a lot in synergy. 
Okay, so there is no competition in there, please. The, it has already happened in the past, a lot of synergy between Hubble Space Telescope and the very large telescope Hubble is in the space. Very large telescope or many other telescopes are on ground. They have, usually the telescope on grounds have a higher resolution because they are bigger. Okay. Bigger the telescope, higher the resolution. Bigger the telescope, fainter object you can observe, even if in, in the unit time. So what I want to say is that the telescope on Earth can observe stars at night and the night is limited by the time of the night. A telescope in the, in the space, they can observe a star or a constellation for as, as long as they want because they are not affected by the sun that is rotating or all many or, un, or, the, or other aspects. So difference are variety in this sense. Um, one of the, another one is that the James Webb is not affected by the atmosphere perturbation of the light, the light coming from a faraway star or constellation or a scientific object, when it crosses our atmosphere, it is disturbed. It is disturbed uh, similar to when, similar to when you are uh, underneath a swimming pool and you are looking at the face of your kid that is looking at you. But, on ground, we are continuing increasing the size thanks to a technology that allows us to remove these disturbances introduced by the atmosphere that is called adaptive optic. That is uh, what it is doing. Uh, think about you being in the swimming pool and looking at your face of your kid. If the light coming from the face of your kid is first reflected on a mirror that is acting the opposite of the water of the swimming pool, exactly the opposite in real time, then you will see the face of your kid exactly as it has to be because you are introducing a disturbance that is the negative disturbance of the water in the swimming pool and you have the face of your kid as you know. Exactly. Of course, of course to, do, to do this, you need to know the face of your kid so that you can continuously compare the image that you are collecting and changing it until you see the face of your kid. This we call, we don't have our kid in the, in the space. Uh, we use a natural guide star that we know how do they look like. And therefore we can correct the light coming from the crossing the atmosphere because we know that star until we can close the loop. So this technology allows us to increase the size of the telescope. But our telescope have a so narrow field of view that unfortunately often there is no natural guide star in the field of view that we want to observe. In this case, we create an artificial laser guide star. This is the reason why often the modern telescope have this laser pointing to the sky. To the sky. These are not pointer. These are lasers that are artificially creating a star because what they do, they excite the atoms of sodium that are at 90 kilometers altitude. And then, and they create a star that they know how it looks like because the laser 
it's it's uh, the face of your kid that I was mentioning before. Is that artificial because it is a cylinder of light, a 50 centimeter diameter, and therefore you need to close the loop of your light until you have a perfect cylinder of 50 centimeters. And this is uh, how we are correcting most of the disturbances introduced by the atmosphere. So the James Webb is not affected by all of these disturbances. They have in the space, in the vacuum, and they're very, very, very clean. On ground, we also have many other, many other um, constraints or difficulties. On ground, we have the gravity that is affecting the shape of our mirrors. On ground, we have the wind. We have the temperature uh, gradients that are changing and affected. We have uh, earthquakes, unfortunately, very often. There, of course, in the space, they have completely different problems. But from some, in particular, from the optical point of view, they are very stable. I don't want to absolutely mention that they are easily, not at all. They have many, many bigger problems. But in that, to answer your question, what are the difference? What are, this is one of them. I mean, the, the telescope in the space, they have other kind of problems different from the one that we have on ground. And on ground, we have to fight against all of the one that I mentioned before. So we have constantly to correct the shape of the mirrors of the optics against the wind, against uh, uh, thermal, thermal variation, against gravity, is a constant, constant push correction of all the optics to fight against the wind, against the uh, gradient variation, and all the rest. What kind of objects is the ELT built for? So what's the main point of interest for the telescope? There are several. One of them is uh, one of the main goals of the ELT that will be um, achieved with uh, Andes future instrument is to um, spectroscopically analyze the light coming from the atmosphere of an exoplanet. Okay. So today, we have identified the presence of exoplanet, and we can speak about that uh, afterwards because today they are detected by by indirect uh, measurement. With the ELT, we will be not only capable of taking a picture of an exoplanet, something that today it is impossible because it's not feasible to resolve, to distinguish light of a star from the light of an exoplanet that is turning around because the light of an exoplanet is a reflected light much less brilliant than the light of a star. So with the ELT, we will be capable of taking a photo because we can distinguish, we can separate the light of the exoplanet from the light of the star. We can resolve this. Now, this is really, really, really exciting um, because as you mentioned, our current state of discovering and analyzing exoplanets is the indirect route to analyze the light that does or that is occluded by the star um, because the planet, the exoplanet, passes the star and keeps occluding the light that comes from the star. And we analyze that light. And But now with the ELT, we have for the first time the option, the opportunity to take a close look, a direct look at the exoplanet. Now, this is 
this is really interesting, really fascinating. So, so what are the benefits of all this? Well, today we don't, we don't know what is, what it is on the planet. You cannot see what it is happening. Okay. Today you can look at the moon, you see the craters, you see all of that, but on the planet, depending on the resolution that we will have, but we might distinguish what it is happening on, on that planet, what it is. I'm not going to a resolution of seeing if there are men or if there is water, but we will be for sure capable of seeing information on that one. I cannot tell you. Sorry if I'm interrupting, but currently we can only analyze the chemical buildup of the potential planet. Now with the ELT, we can uh, take a photo and maybe make out mountains or whatnot. Is that right? Yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. But the most exciting thing is not only the photo, that it could be a, allow me, touristic inspection. We can make the analysis of the atmosphere of that planet. So the light coming from a star on the backside of the planet that is crossing the atmosphere of that planet can be analyzed by the ELT and see what is the composition of that atmosphere. We can see if there is chlorophyll, chlorophyll, if there is uh, water, oxygen, if there is pollution, if there are contaminants in there, if they also have cars that are driving and therefore you see CO in the, in the atmosphere. I mean, that will be really exciting. But this is, this is one of the many scientific goals. To me, all this is mind-blowingly exciting because... I think we we just had Lisa Kaltenecker from the Carl Sagan Institute here on the show as a guest, and uh, we were talking quite a bit about exoplanets and that we're closing in on finding out as to if we're alone in in the universe or at least in the solar system um, and beyond. Um, and now we have the technology, and we are very close to finding that ultimate solution. So, so which direction are we headed? What's your take? I am, I am an engineer. Now I can say I am a manager. I am an engineer. I am not a scientist and therefore I'm mostly attracted by this kind of question. If, first of all, Andesi is the second generation instrument and this is an instrument that uh, is the first one that will allow us to see and that is now in phase A of the design. And this is the instrument that will allow us to see, to perform this spectroscopy while to make an, an image of the exoplanet and that will be allowed with the Mikado that is one of the first instruments of the ELT and therefore indeed by the these, these decades of the year we should be able to have an image of exoplanet. The closest is that uh, four year light distance from us. Other pretty close are at uh, 60 light years from us, there are many. The first one you mentioned is from a Trappist system, right? Is yeah, is a four light years from us. So we'll see, we'll see. Engineers have dreams, right? Don't you ever think about the big question? <laughs> of course, of course. But today I don't have. If for you the big question is, are we alone? Today I don't have any sign from. From the environment that I navigate in, I have ever, never heard about anything like that. But there may be a signal. Who knows? 
tomorrow, maybe. You never know. Um, fascinating. Um, tell us a little bit about the ELT and its environment. I think it's built on top of a mountain, and the mountain had to be flattened first in order to make place for the construction site. Tell us a little bit about how difficult it is and how how it was to build that telescope in the first place. Okay, that's a, a nice story. <clears throat> the, of course, the investment uh, was uh, started. The idea of the ELT comes from the 1990, around 1994, 1995. The, yeah, the father is uh, Roberto Ginmozzi that at that time he was the director of Paranal Observatory. I was there at that time uh, uh, just coming on the mountain. I then became the head of engineering, deputy director of that place. But at that time they were started looking for the place where to put it. And of course, also the design. At that time, the telescope was, you might remember, called the OWL overwhelmingly large telescope. Well, was someone trying to make a, a joke here? No, 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 no. At that time, it was the main meter was 100 meter, 100 meter diameter. Okay, let's move on with the story of the site. So um, we started the search. And you have to realize that uh, Cerro Armazones, that is the location where we are actually building the ELT, was one of the candidates for the VLT, for the Very Large Telescope, okay? Then we decided, ESO decided uh, that uh, Cerro Paranal was uh, less windy, a little bit better for the VLT, and therefore they left Cerro Amazones that became a mountain free for any other usage, any other anybody that wanted to use. And at that time, the TMT, that is one of our competitors, the 30-meter telescope, took Armazones and said, ah, this is a good mountain. Let's put, put here our instruments and measure the quality and blah, blah, blah. ESO, in the meantime, continued the search in uh, La Palma Island. That was the only location in the Northern Hemisphere. But there was also a location in uh, Namibia, in uh, Morocco, in uh, Argentina, and uh, there was also um, another one in Chile, two more in Chile. So we made a very, very deep search, putting uh, uh, several instruments on each of these mountains, because the, the first goal was scientific. That it had to be a place where the scientific goals could be easily performed, uh, not the continuous rain or a lot of clouds or all of that. No, they had to be possible like that. And during that search, TMT left again, said Amazon, and said, okay, no, we prefer to go and build the TMT in Hawaii Island on Hilo. And to go up there, there is already the Keck telescope, uh, uh, two two Kecks, and uh, so they left again free Cerro Amazones. We compared again 
including also using the data that the TMT project had, uh, had recorded, comparing all the data with all the other mountains that I was mentioning before in the various locations. And finally, we pick Armazonis. Several Armazonis say, no, this is very good. Even if uh, it is windy, but we can make it. Uh, and uh, all the situation turned out to be really fantastic uh, for the scientific goal of the telescope. Good. Um, uh, so once Cerro Amazonas was decided, it was very good because this allows us to have uh, quite a, an important infrastructure already available in Chile because ESO is already operating the VLT, or is mm-hmm. part of ALMA, is operating La Silla, and uh, this has a huge value you know already the logistic people, you have connection with mm-hmm. the government, and you know how to move all of that and, and many others. So this was a great advantage. One of the disadvantages of Amazonas is that it is very seismic area, and therefore mm-hmm. this has imposed uh, special uh, requirements on the design of the dome, of the telescope, mm-hmm. and the rest. Um, it is 25 kilometers east, from uh, Cerro uh, Paranal, um, and therefore we had first uh, build an access road to the telescope. Mm-hmm. We had to flatten the top of the mountain, as you said, in order to allow the excavation for the foundation. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, exactly in the middle of the mountain, where everybody was 100% sure that it was rocky, <laughs> there was half rock, half sand. <laughs> and therefore, this has complicated a bit the foundations of the telescope. Mm-hmm. So the foundation for the dome is a fully a rock, mm-hmm. one piece, but in the middle of the mountain, there With is sand. a half of that, that there is sandy, complicating a mm-hmm. bit the mm-hmm. deeper and the size of the foundation mm-hmm. for the telescope. Um, once they the, the the top of the mountain was flattened. Uh, then we started with all the excavation and all the rest. I don't know if this uh, answered your question, Marcus. Or absolutely, absolutely, uh, it's wonderful, wonderful story. I love stories. Is this a very desolate place? Um, do are there villages around? I guess not. I guess it's a very it's a it's a desert, right? It is in the middle of the Atacama Desert. Mm-hmm. It is very isolated. It is uh, 120 kilometers south of Antofagasta. That mm-hmm. is uh, really an isolated city. The closest city to Antofagasta is uh, um, Calama. That is something uh, three hours driving of more in the middle of the desert. Well, at the beginning um, when I joined ESO in the 1999, and um, I was at Paranal when they were integrating the third out of four telescopes. Mm-hmm. At that time, there was no road. There was mm-hmm. no access road. Every time that uh, we were going up to the observatory, we had to find a new path with the car with a four by four <laughs> where we had uh, two spare wheels. Uh, we have uh, an additional uh, um, can of gasoline and uh, plenty of water because there was no 
cellular sign. There was mm. no radio that could reach us. So we were really, allow me, left alone over there. <laughs> and that, uh, so at the beginning, it was really an adventure to achieve the, the observatory in the middle of nowhere. Uh, recently, the Chilean government uh, has paved the road with asphalt. So it is now mm -hmm. really there is this black stripe in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. in the middle that is crossing that part of the of the desert that is coming very, very close to to both uh, uh, Cerro Paranal and Cerro Amazonas, that is uh, one where there is the very large telescope and the other one where we are building mm -hmm. the ELT. What is, Roberto, what is social life like at this research uh, place? How many people live there and what is, how do people engage? Is there, is there anything other than work? Yes. There is, uh, ESO has really taken care All of, all of that. Think that at the very beginning, during construction, the workers, we were living in containers for several years, similar to how we are living now when we go to Cerro Amazonas. But then one of the first things that ESO built was a gymnasium where we oh. can uh, play tennis, uh, play mm. soccer. It's in-house, so it's indoor in a big mm. of these... Uh, um, warehouse, or let's call it like that, but it is pretty high. We, we, we play basketball, volleyball, uh, soccer. There is also a place where you can do all of these machines for, uh, uh, the, in the gymnasium. But, um, after a few years, uh, ESO built also a residencia exactly mm -hmm. to allow people to socialize, to have some mm -hmm. exchanges. Because in an observatory, you, you need to take care a lot of light pollution. Mm -hmm. We drive, for example, with the lights off at night. At night, mm -hmm. uh, our illumination are either the star or recently we have put some lead on the side of the, of the, of the lanes in order to allow us to drive with no light on, on the car exactly to avoid light pollution for the telescope. So. Recently, the ESO has built a residencia, a residencia that is sort of underneath, underground as well. Um, we have a swimming pool, we have a garden as well, we have a, a little cinema room, we have a, 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 a music room where people can play loudly all the instruments that they want. <laughs> um, and therefore, That is where uh, people socialize among the, the, themselves. Mm -hmm. We have a, a turno system. People go on the mountain on uh, a Tuesday and they go back home on the following Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there is a sort of, we call this turno 8-6, where for the six days on rest period, they stay at home or they can do what they want. Um, less... People do a five to turno. These are the people that go up on Monday and go down on Friday. These are people that uh, have difficulties in sharing. I mean, it depends on the charge or on the role that you have. But the majority of people on the mountain, they work on an eight, six, uh, eight, six mm -hmm. turno. Mm -hmm. How many people are there present at any time? At, uh, I'm now speaking about um, Cerro Paranal, that is a, mm -hmm. the, the observatory in operation. I can then mm -hmm. tell you how many people are at Cerro Amazonas in construction. 
the observatory today, there are uh, around 120, 150 people. Mm-hmm. Um, 50% of them are uh, ESO staff. The other one are people belonging to logistics, uh, to other, let's say, less uh, uh, critical for operation activities. Mm-hmm. At uh, Cerro Amazones today, there are around uh, 170, 180 people. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, um, recently they have uh, diminished the number because a couple of months ago there were 250. Mm-hmm. But since they have finished the civil work, uh, civil mm-hmm. works activity, they are now uh, only in the mechanical integration part, mm-hmm. and therefore they are not needed so many people as uh, as many as were needed during mm-hmm. the civil works construct. Mm-hmm. But these people are mostly belonging to the contractor. The contractor now working there is a Cimolai, an Italian company, belonging to a consortium, Ace. And there are a few ESO staffs, less than mm-hmm. 10, that are following up, uh, monitoring uh, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, progress, uh, quality, and all of the rest, the activities that are happening uh, during construction of the, uh, of the telescope. I, th- I, think, I think this is important also to understand that, if I understand you correct, it's mostly engineering staff and and people who are maintaining the telescope. So... The actual scientific research personnel is not present because it makes no sense to be at the telescope because data is being analyzed somewhere else around the world, I guess. I guess you're now speaking about uh, Paranal Observatory that is yes. in operation. Yes. Um, no, they still have astronomers, scientists on the mountain. Okay. You, you can do... You can do, um, but astronomers, they will always be on the mountain. Either are visitors or are ESO staff. Mm-hmm. So the telescope today is operated locally. Mm-hmm. Not ah. inside the telescope. There is a control room that is uh, 300 meters far away. We will also operate the ELT from the control room at Cerro Paranal, 25 kilometers away. Mm-hmm. But the scientists, the astronomer, are physically there okay. to operate the telescope. Okay. I will mention that we have two ways of operating. One is in visitor mode. That is when the scientists interested in the data send to ESO how to, how they want to be, to observe their scientific object. Mm-hmm. And therefore, ESO takes care of performing the observation. Mm-hmm. Or we have the visitor coming on the mountain and they monitor, follow up constantly the data that is acquired, allow them to potentially fine tune the final observation mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is always done by a telescope and instrument operator that is mm-hmm. ESO stuff. So the astronomer is looking at the data that uh, are achieved, are obtained by the telescope and instrument operator. And he decides, okay, yes, you keep going as I wrote, as I already provided you the information. Or they say, no, a little change here, depending on the information that they Mm -hmm. are Mm -hmm. acquiring in real time. Mm -hmm. Roberto, um, I 
uh, I'd like to go back uh, a couple of minutes now. When you mentioned that you're supposed to drive with lights off um, on your cars, what are the light rules at this site? So is there, if, if I go to um, the observatory, are there any light rules? So for example, um, don't turn on lights after this and that time or use no lighters if you need to smoke or, or whatnot. I guess it's a very dark place and there are no advertisements outside of buildings. There are advertisements along the access road. It is a big sign. No light being from beyond these uh, signs. Really? Really? Yes. Yes. So there are all of these uh, little orange lead at the mm -hmm. side of the street. That yes. will help. Of course, you, you, you can drive at uh, five, 10 kilometers per hour. Yes. So, uh, and this is happening uh, something like probably one kilometer from the entrance to the observatory. Mm -hmm. And therefore your car is not illuminating. Your beams are not illuminating straight inside the telescope that will huh. damage the, the image that the telescope is acquiring. So you can drive only with the position beam, the one that yes. are very, very, very light yeah. that you don't see yeah. anything. You cannot see the, the cars have the precedence to the pedestrian because uh, the pedestrian can't see the car. The car driver cannot see the pedestrian if they are crossing. <laughs> Everybody that is walking has a little torch that mm -hmm. is requested to illuminate uh, the floor, never towards the sky, but the floor mm -hmm. to show himself. So when you go there and the people that are giving you the key of your rooms, attached to the key, there is this little torch that mm -hmm. is to help you going outside at night. Mm -hmm. So you can go outside, of course, and you use this little, little torch to illuminate the floor hmm. on the ground. But believe me, after three minutes that you have been outside, you don't need any torch because huh. the sky alone illuminates the ground. So you let your eyes uh, open in order mm -hmm. to see in the dark and you will enjoy a fantastic natural view that is uh, every time that I go there, it is uh, something that is fantastic. Often I lay down in the middle of the desert and look at the sky because it's such a feeling, such a beauty that is uh, fantastic. Fantastic. I remember in 2007 when there was the comet McNaft in the sky mm -hmm. over there. Wow. That was superb. That was extraordinarily beautiful. Roberto, you're giving me literal goosebumps right now um, because I can really, really understand what you're talking about. Because a couple of decades ago, when I was young, when we were young, the night sky was more visible. The stars, the Milky Way was visible. And through light pollution, we lost that miracle. Is, is that right? It's astonishing. Look, it's astonishing. I often have driven back home at night or I was driving back to the observatory at night, I stop in the middle of that road and I lay down 
exactly because I am alone. I can see and feel the universe, the sky. It is something that is, it is a feeling that is uh, unforgettable. It is fantastic. It's overwhelming. It, there is some, some strange force that takes control of, of my body at least. So I guess yes. yours as well. It's, it's very emotional. Yes. 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 And sometimes I've done that also with some visitors that were in the car with me. I said, you know what? I let you feel something Get out of the car. Strange. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Huh. Huh. I think this could be something that I would dearly miss um, if I were in your shoes to have had that opportunity to have that night sky experience and then go back to Europe and not see it anymore. It must be a strange, a strange situation to have. It is. I am uh, super lucky that I can go back there more often. When I left Paranal in, uh, when was that? In 2008. And I was coming to work here in Munich, I turned around because at that time I still didn't know what I was coming to do here. They called me, please come here to Munich. We need your help in the design of the ELT. I said, okay, in the design. But we still didn't know where it would have gone. It could have gone in Namibia or in La Palma mm. or whatever. So I mm. turned around and say, I don't know if I will ever see you here again. <laughs> that was really, really tough. Mm. And when they said, we selected again, uh, Sarah Armazone, I said, look at that. I'm back and I'm back uh, as much as I want, more or less. So, <laughs> yes. Hmm. Roberto, um, Tell us a little bit about yourself, what, why you're doing what you're doing right now, how you became the manager, manager of the ELT. Has that always been your path from the earliest stages of your life? No, no. I, um, I am a mechanical engineer and I have always wanted to become, when I was young, a mechanical engineer. I studied in uh, Naples, south of Italy, and uh, I, after the graduation, I did uh, fellowships in um, combustion problem, and I was studying combustion problems to improve the burning of the gasoline in the diesel engines mm -hmm. by means of, uh, it was at the very beginning of the injectors inside the combustion mm -hmm. chamber of the diesel engine. And I was studying all of that uh, with um, optical technique. Mm -hmm. So I completed my study at uh, Lawrence Berkeley Institute in California, mm -hmm. close to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. Then I came back. The position at the university didn't show up. There were mm -hmm. promises, promises, but you know how it is. I said, okay, now I need to start working for real. <laughs> so um, I was hired by an Italian aerospace research center. And I was at the beginning <coughs> called there to apply the optical techniques that I was using to study the combustion flame in a plasma wind tunnel, in a hypersonic plasma wind tunnel. Fantastic mm. project. That was a wind tunnel to test the re-entry condition of the Hermes, of the space shuttle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I need to study the behavior of the thermal protection system 
of the space shuttle, when exposed to Mach 14, the real speed of the reentry condition from uh, the atmosphere. Wow. So at the beginning, I was the expert in all of these uh, optical technique. Then I was the project engineer. And therefore, when they, when the project uh, terminated, I said, and now what I'm going to do? I don't hmm. want to now do, there was no new project that was uh, um, as uh, exciting as the one that I completed. Believe me, you can go in the web and look at that. It's uh, called the Scirocco Plasma hmm. Wind Tunnel in the south of Italy. It is one of the biggest to test the reentry condition. It has a, cam- a chamber to put one-to-one the nose of the Hermes, of the space huh. shuttle. But, but again, you're, 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 what are you mentioning? F- Mach 14? Mach 14, on ground. And that's, that's reproducible yes. in that tunnel? Yes, by means that's of the, a, gigantic, <laughs> uh, a gigantic nozzle that has a throat of one centimeter in the exit of two meters, where you have uh-huh. a delta pressure in-out that allows you the, the air to accelerate. Mm-hmm. You are converting all the thermal energy, that's why mm-hmm. the plasma that we were heating, into cinetic, kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. Mach 14 was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> was a fantastic project. So is this place it, still around? It is still around. It is, it is a big one. It has a, an architer of uh, 20 megawatt, electrical mm-hmm. 20 megawatt. It has a huge uh, uh, evacuation uh, in um, in uh, diffuser that mm-hmm. is uh, vacuum diffusers very very uh, sophisticated mm-hmm. very advanced and it is still one of the biggest uh, in the world to test all of these caps and wow. the rest wow. so when it finished it was in the 1997 1998 i said no i want to do something else I was just married with my wife. We had one kid, one daughter. Mm-hmm. We were living in Naples. My wife was uh, supporting me. She's a biologist and she was working. Mm-hmm. Say, okay, no, I know. I see that you are excited. You would like to do something else. Mm-hmm. Good. She was supporting me and looking for something else. And at that time, there were two things that I was trying to become an astronaut <laughs> or, or to go to work for ESO in the middle of nowhere in Paraná. <laughs> so at the end for the astronaut, I end up in the, to be in the first 50. At that time, Italy was a selecting, but I have a 50, five zero, five zero within the first wow. 50. I was, but I have a knee with a screw inside because I was uh, playing fencing. Mm-hmm. And uh, during a match, I broke my ligament of the left knee. Mm. So I was, uh, Surgery so mu- so much for your astron- astronaut career. Exactly, exactly. So instead of becoming an astronaut, I went as a mechanical engineer in the middle of nowhere, Antofagasta, in the middle of the, the Atacama Desert, to build the, to help in building and setting up the VLT, the very large mm-hmm. telescope. Mm-hmm. Then from mechanical engineer, I was the head of engineering and then head of engineering deputy director of the observatory. And then they called me back here in Europe, where I'm working now. And hmm. since 2014, I am the program manager of the, of the ELT. Hmm. So how, how far into the ELT project, the construction 
are you right now? When will it be fully operational? Um, 2028, today is the date that we are fighting to have the first light of the telescope. We have, last year, we passed the 50% overall. We Today, we are probably between 55 and 60% progress. We have uh, the, the dome and the telescope, the mechanical structure should be ready by the middle of 2026. So in two and a half years, more or less. Mm -hmm. We are progressing uh, with all the rest, manufacturing mm -hmm. all the pieces. We are fully funded, as I said at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So, uh, of course, we have still many difficulties. From a technological point of view, today the highest uh, technological risk is the M5. <clears throat> the M5 is, uh, could appear as the easiest because it's a flat elliptic mirror, 2.7 by 2.3, but it is uh, tip tilted. And therefore, during the tip tilting at 10 Hertz has to remain flat and mm -hmm. therefore being pretty big and tilting mm -hmm. it you understand that it can bend if it is not mm -hmm. rigid and light. So mm -hmm. it is made out of uh, silicon carbide. And uh, you can say, okay, also Herschel has a telescope mm -hmm. made of uh, silicon carbide. Unfortunately, the requirement of polishing mm -hmm. of the optical surface are much more stringent than Herschel, exactly for what I was mm -hmm. saying before, that they are in the infrared wavelength, we are in the visible and therefore mm -hmm. our polishing has a much more stringent requirement. Mm -hmm. And these cannot be achieved by silicon carbide alone. Mm -hmm. We need to deposit by vapor carbon deposition, a layer <coughs> that can allow to reach the less than 40 nanometer RMS wavefront error on the front surface, on the optical surface. Mm -hmm. And this is a technology that um, we are pushing beyond the uh, state of the art. Therefore, we are working with the involved company, French company, Bustec and uh, Safran Reusk, Merce and Bustec and Safran Reusk, in order to progress on this technology. Hmm. What are the, what, what are the odds that this f part fails because it's too difficult? <coughs> There is the, This thin layer, we call it CBD, carbon mm -hmm. vapor deposition, is deposited. It is at the end, it's not deposited because it is a special process that is a sort of mm -hmm. evaporating from the blank. Mm -hmm. We need the pretty thick layer of this, uh, <clears throat> let's call it coating on top of this. And the mirror is made up of six petals that mm -hmm. are then braced together. Mm -hmm. So the thickness of this uh, CVD layer has to be thick, much thicker than never done before mm -hmm. in order to cover the potential misalignment of when bracing mm -hmm. the six petals together that mm -hmm. then have to be polished at once mm -hmm. all together <laughs> as a single piece. First difficulties. Second difficulty is the brazing of these petals that have to have a uniform surface, fully brazed and 
this is another very, very difficult technology to then deposit also on top of there these materials to be polished. So we are speaking really of uh, something where there are many people interested, in particular mm-hmm. from the aerospace, because mm-hmm. the silicon carbide is uh, used a lot also in uh, in uh, airplane because it's very light but very stiff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so this is a, another very interesting aspect that many many technology used for the ELT mm-hmm. have found other application in completely different mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For example, the laser that I was mentioning before to create the artificial star are used by the dentist for some special process on the tooth. Huh. There is uh, mm. the actuator, the positioning actuator under the M1 segments that mm-hmm. they found a completely different application. Uh, the anti-seismic device of the, that they've been developed mm-hmm. for the telescope will certainly mm-hmm. find other applications somewhere else because you know that the anti-seismic device uh, protection for the telescope Mm-hmm. This that that is a very interesting uh, aspect because the telescope, as you can imagine, has to be very stiff. Mm-hmm. But if you have an earthquake, you want it very fluid so that you do exactly. not transmit mm-hmm. the acceleration of mm-hmm. the ground. So you need to create uh, some anti-seismic device that are at the same time very stiff mm-hmm. and very fluid when there is the earthquake. So there is an active system that is reading the acceleration in order to detach the motion of the ground from the telescope on top. So there are many, many new ideas that have been developed for the ELT that will certainly find other application in a completely different Mm -hmm. uh, environment. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about observing um, the, the first observations. What is the first object um, that is being looked at. Is, is, is this like just pure and dry science and, and scientific methoding or is there something else behind it? Who gets the first one? You cannot imagine the pressure that we will have on that. Or better, you can imagine. There is already, there is already a competition of uh, the various instruments that have to be first. Today it is a Mikado that is an imager camera in the visible and in the near infrared. <coughs> uh, but of course, uh, if uh, there is another instrument that come earlier and the telescope is ready, we will not be waiting for the one in case, you know, one of them might have some uh, difficulties mm-hmm. at the last moment or things like that. So today I cannot answer your question and I don't have, and also because I'm not one of these, uh, scientists, sure. I am. I am making the True. highway to reach the knowledge available for the <laughs> scientists. But I guess that observation times are already, or the schedules are already being filled for the years to come. Not yet. Um, not yet, exactly, not yet. because we still don't know who is going to be first in okay. configuration and the rest. Yes, yes, I understand. Roberto, I have um, an odd question, maybe. Um would you be ready to go into space yourself if the call? Oh, sure. Came? You sure. would. Because you wanted to be an astronaut anyway. So exactly. if, if someone came around and said, Hey, I don't care about your knee, hop on board, you would go immediately. Immediately. <laughs> so how about your wife? Does she know? 
Of, of course. <laughs> I was flying. I took a driving, a driving like pilot license when I was in Chile. So I was uh, flying uh, with all the beauty of flying over Paranal, over uh, Escondida, that is one of the mm. biggest mining company in uh, copper. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I, I would jump on that uh, immediately. Good. So let's um, put ourselves now into that mindset of going into space. Um, let's not just go to the moon. Let's go somewhere else, maybe Mars. And we know it's a very long time. It's a very long journey to get there. So my question to you, um, Roberto, would be um, what kind of music, what kind of one song would you not want to miss on that journey to keep you entertained, to keep you in good spirits? Because the background is that we have um, a Spotify playlist. It's the playlist for the aspiring space traveler. And each guest of this podcast contributes one of their favorite tunes to that playlist. What's, what's your tune? Look, I... Today, when I was young, there was one that I loved to hear. And when I hear it recently came up again, it brings me back fantastic. And it is, it could sound a little bit ridiculous, but I love to hear uh, the Super Trump mm -hmm. that are uh, special one. I am also, and I am telling it to you because I've never <laughs> told it to anybody. I'm creating a Spotify list for when uh, I hope I will open the telescope with some music inside. Ah. You know, it must be great to open the observing door yes. to the sky and knowing what is going to observe over there in terms of capability, yes. power, and the rest. Yes. So that is uh, going to be fantastic. And something that would accompany the opening yes. of the, of the, of the door. For yes. me, it is the Bolero di Ravel. Yes, of course. Should that we, should we, Should we add this also to, well, now you need to decide. Is it Super Tramp? Which tune from Super Tramp or would you add the Bolero to? No, I would go, I would go for the Bolero di Ravello. Well, also for your journey. Yes. yes. Good. Yes. Good. So be it. <laughs> Wonderful. I make a need to connect you with a great um, person from the music industry I know who may be interested in supporting you with with that um, great opening moment. So, so let me let me give this uh, ad, an additional thought. You see, you see the moment, the moment yeah, where, of course, where at the first light, yes, you have of course. everybody around inside the dome. Yes. Dark, completely dark. Everybody has acclimatized their eyes. And suddenly you start hearing the noise of opening the door. But this has to be accompanied by an important music because it's opening to you, to all the people, the window uh, 
towards the universe that is now going to explore by a machine that is incredible. It's a machine that can read one euro at 10 kilometers distance. It is a machine that can discover something that today is uh, inimaginable. So it is, uh, huh. and that's why I need the music that is bringing the emotion. That's why I thought about the Bolero de Ravel, that is a, a growing music that is driving you towards a, a special place. Wonderful. And um, another question to you. This um, podcast is called the Space Cafe Podcast, a coffee place for the ears and for the mind. And now and then, in uh, you as an Italian, I'm not telling you anything uh, about coffee. Um, you now and then love to have a good espresso to energize yourself. Now, why don't you share an espresso for the mind with me? with the audience, something you think that could invigorate and inspire the audiences and myself. And you can pick whatever kind of topic you want to pick. What's your espresso for the mind? In terms of subject, I love sailing. Could that bring you a good coffee? <laughs> I love sailing. And, so, and that would invigorate. Tell me a little more. You love sailing. Why could it be? So you would recommend to go sailing? Absolutely. That is another okay. place. Another place where I have enjoyed the sky because, uh, Sailing at night, uh, it brings you to another place where you can enjoy the sky. Going, of course, uh, I used to sail quite a lot in the Mediterranean, going from uh, Naples to Sardinia. And therefore, you really are far, far away from light pollution places. Mm -hmm. And therefore, on top of enjoying the view of the sky, you hear also the splashes of the waves on the boat with no alternative noise rather than the wind in your ears in the view of the sky at night. It is another fantastic feeling that many sailors have when they're sailing at night uh, and so on. So that is another fantastic feeling that I often when I can go and have, particularly in summertime, but enjoying that one is, uh, it could be a fantastic coffee. <laughs> Roberto Tamai, thank you so much for taking the time and letting us into your world, into your fascinating world. And thank inspire you. us. Thank you. Thank you. And that brings us, my friends, to the end of today's interstellar journey on the Space Cafe podcast. We hope you enjoyed this fascinating dive into the world of the European Extremely Large Telescope and the captivating stories from our special guest, Roberto Tamai. It's conversations like these that remind me of the incredible human spirit that drives us to explore the unknown and push the boundaries 
of our understanding. So yes, funding for such kind of research is important and will always be important. Before you return to your earthly endeavors, my friends, we have a small request. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate our podcast. Your ratings and reviews help us reach more space enthusiasts like you and keep this cafe bustling with intriguing conversations and stellar guests. So don't be shy. Let us know what you think. Thanks for joining us on this galactic adventure. And remember to keep your eyes on the stars. Until next time, this is the Space Cafe Podcast signing off. Stay curious, stay inspired, and keep exploring. Bye-bye.